Welcome back to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly podcast about Swift.org uh, news and the Swift open source projects. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. And today uh, is a, a slightly belated episode on WWDC. Uh, we're going to talk about our reactions to the, the announcements, all the new Swift stuff uh, that was uh, announced and released, um, as well as some commentary on the WWDC panel that Realm hosted. Um, you may recall JP was originally going to host that and then and then I ended up filling in for that. And over the past few weeks, we've had a few episodes of Swift Unwrapped that we had recorded before um, because we weren't able to record uh, this episode about DubDub during DubDub week. Right. And as we record this, it's just over a month after the keynote or July 7th. Um, and... On June 5th, when the keynote was going on and then the State of the Union, I was glued to the screen pretty much like uh, all of you, I'm sure. Um, and as the announcements just kind of kept coming in, I got the best announcement of DubDub ever. Uh, my wife told me that uh, we were going to have our son right then and there. And so um, I became a dad that week. Uh, so that completely flipped my week around, but uh, definitely for the better. And now here we are uh, a month later with a lot of pent-up uh, reactions to what happened the week of DubDub that Jesse and I are just dying to talk about. Right. And pent-up dad jokes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just They're going to start increasing even more. You have no idea. Yeah, so uh, before we get started into the dubbed up stuff, actually, there's a new thing that we want to start doing with Swift Unwrapped, and that's uh, highlighting uh, an improvement of the week or a bug of the week or fix of the week or something uh, just uh, uh, at the beginning of each episode, um, and JP has something for this one. Yeah, let's start on a positive note. Uh, rather than focus on something that's broken, let's look at something that was improved and added. So I want to look at um, an improvement to Swift Package Manager, which uh, is addressing SR5270. Um, which was to add the option to pass uh, C++ compiler flags when building uh, via, via the Swift Package Manager, which is extremely useful uh, to actually use the Swift Package Manager as a serious build tool. Uh, if any of your dependencies have any C++ and they need anything other than the default options, the default compiler flags, uh, you need this. And previously, if you passed any uh, C++ compiler options, like for example, if you're specifying C++ 14 to build your C++ code, then that flag would also be passed to Swift C, and then Swift C would say, oh, you can't give me that flag. And so you'd, you'd be able to build C++ parts of your Swift package manager graph, but then as soon as you would start hitting any non-C++, it would say, nope, invalid flag, and then it would stop, which kind of defeats the purpose. If you're using a Swift package manager, it's to eventually build something that involves some Swift. Right. Um, and so uh, thankfully, this option was added, and it still means that when you run Swift build, you still need to pass dash x CXX, which is... Um, uh, the ability to pass C++-only flags. But this basically means that um, you can 
start seriously including some C++ in your projects uh, that, that build via the Swift Package Manager. And um, I was uh, th this change was, was brought to you by Ankit, who works on the uh, Swift Package Manager team at Apple. Um, and with that, I was actually able to build Realm's core database component, which is all C++, uh, and wrap that in a little... Uh, C header, and then call that from Swift, all using the Swift Package Manager from the snapshot with this. So this kind of lays the groundwork for more complex libraries that previously you might have to um, build with an external build system, build system, build the C++ parts or the C parts or any of the non-Swift parts, and then reference those as system modules from within the Swift Package Manager. And this means that you can build all of these um, all of your dependencies entirely from the Swift Package Manager, entirely from source. So definitely some good additions there. Uh, so you could have a Swift package that is basically just a C or C++ library. Definitely. Right? Yeah. Um, and there are a number of examples in the Swift Package Manager repo that do that. I see. And uh, they use the naming convention. They'll prefix um, the package name with C. So, uh, for example, um, one of the examples that they give is, uh, I think, libjpeg or something like that. Okay. And then the the way that they expose the module, it's entirely all C. They call it cjpeg. I see. Uh, and that's just a convention that isn't really followed much out in the wild because the Swift Package Manager isn't really used in practice mm -hmm. for building lots of C or C++ type projects, but it's one that I think uh, the Swift Package Manager team want to encourage the community to do. Right. And then if you have C++, you need to wrap that in either C or Objective-C in order to call into it from Swift. That's right, because yeah. um, Swift has absolutely no C++ interop, but yeah. thankfully um, there are ways to re-expose C++ APIs either as Objective-C or as C. Mm -hmm. um, so Swift definitely supports that, and so does the Swift Package Manager. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, exciting stuff. And, you know, we often focus on uh, bugs and things that are broken or what to improve next, so it's nice to occasionally take a look at... Um, at a more positive side of things and see how uh, everything is improving all around us. And this is one small addition that contributes to that. Now, back to DubDub announcements. Uh, there's a ton of great stuff uh, announced. Um, my general feeling is that uh, even with, with the OSs, with Xcode, uh, it feels like the focus is really on stability performance improvements, refinements, uh, kind of all around this year, you know, that kind of like snow leopard vibe, you know, improving swift performance, rewriting parts of Xcode. Yeah, I, I'd say that's, I'd say that's one half of the story. Sure. It's really stability and performance. The other half is ergonomics, yeah. improving the developer experience. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the changes that were done to the string API, uh, making it conform to collection, for example, simplifying it. Um, that falls in, in this other category of, of ergonomics, and so does all of the refactoring support that was added in Xcode 9. Uh, it also falls into this, this developer ergonomics side of things, which is how do we improve productivity? Uh, how do we improve just the, the daily churn of working with Swift code? 
Um, so it's nice to see that there was there was such a nice focus on that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and those refactoring tools uh, will be open sourced eventually. I don't think they are at the moment. I, th- I think they're partially in, um, yeah. and but that they were partially in even before WWDC. If you'll recall in our predictions episode, uh, yeah. we talked about how the rename action had snuck into source kit responses. Mm-hmm. Um, and the refactoring tools... Um, obviously tie into the rest of the compiler quite a bit. Right. And so um, it's not like it's a new from scratch project that you know is entirely independent of everything that was there before. But I don't think that um, the refactoring set of changes, the complete set that's intended to be opened, uh, is fully landed yet. Yeah, and it's good to note that it also, uh, that refactoring, the new refactoring system um, is not, only for Swift, it also supports Objective C, C, and C++. Yeah, and and um, there's been Objective C refactoring support in Xcode for a while, but uh, C++ refactoring is new as well. Yep. Um, I recall previously, with if I had to refactor any uh, C++ or Objective C++ for that matter, mm-hmm. I needed to dive into App Code because uh, uh, it has support right. for for doing that. And so now. Um, you have a much more consistent story across all of Apple's languages, which is so nice to see. Yeah. Did AppCode ever support refactoring in Swift? Yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, as broad as what they've added here or just more simple things like rename? and Definitely very broad, very powerful. Yeah. Um, and I know a few people who swear by AppCode. Um, Same here. I personally have a really hard time using it, um, probably just because I never uh, got comfortable using it. Yeah, um, same here. But I've still had to pull it up and sometimes use it as like a a very focused, specific tool. Um, For example, for doing more complex refactorings, I'll pull up AppCode. Um, And hopefully, but it's never been a pleasure to use. Like it's always felt like work. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I don't know how much of that is just um, the fact that AppCode feels like this really heavy Java-built IDE that runs in a virtual machine that doesn't feel fully native. Um, And and I have actually great things to say about AppCode, but but for the most part, I haven't really enjoyed um, like using using it and the experience of using it, and I'm sure that Xcode is probably like much heavier, but it doesn't feel as heavy. Sure, sure. Yeah, I maybe haven't given AppCode a a fair chance. I've only used it a bit and kind of had a similar experience, but yeah. So I, I think if you get used to the way it works, um, it, it actually does even more refactoring than uh, these new Xcode nine releases, as far as I'm aware. Um, it's definitely supported things like uh, extracting a snippet of code that you've highlighted into its own method. And it does, AppCode mm-hmm. does this because it's built on top of JetBrains' IDE platform. Right. Uh, and they just have that support for all of their languages. Right. Um, and of course, if you're doing any sort of development um, on Linux in Swift, CLion, which is another JetBrains IDE mm. with Swift integration, um, is is still really your only option. It still supports all of that refactoring support as well. So if you're doing a lot of cross-platform development, um, maybe sticking with that is best. I don't know. Yeah. 
cool. Yeah, I'd be I'd I'd be very surprised to see if AppCode uh, actually migrates over to using the new refactoring support that is about to be open sourced or that is partly open sourced, um, just because their whole stack is like so custom and um, uh, integrated with with their own environment that I don't think they'd be able to piecemeal just kind of add uh, the refactoring support that that's been upstreamed here. Yeah, and. Uh... One thing to note for contributors is that now this is, um, you know, it's like all these bits and pieces of the tooling and of Xcode are are being open source now. And so in a way, we we have access now to improve Xcode in some ways. Absolutely. And we have for some time, you know, um, you, you often see people on Twitter saying, oh, syntax highlighting is broken. If Xcode was open source, I'd fix it. And <laughs> they don't know that it, that stack is entirely open source, right. the part that does the syntax highlighting. We've talked yeah. about this at length before. Yeah. Um, and so it kind of feels like a like a cop-out to say um, to say that. But now that there is more and more that's, that's actually of, of these primitive components, like the refactoring fundamentals, the um, s- source editing fundamentals those are all open and hopefully we'll see um some contributions from the community to to extend that and mm-hmm. improve on that yeah uh another big thing is that the uh the source editor in xcode was completely rewritten from scratch in swift this is one of the uh new but still few places that we know of apple using uh swift uh, on their own teams and their own projects. Well, especially on the developer tool side, um, right. using Swift in there uh, is is really refreshing to see. Um, so hopefully, um, we see some some more Swift uh, being added over time. But I don't know if you've used the new source editor uh, in Xcode nine, but it feels fantastic. It, it, they did a really good job. Yeah, um, and it's missing a few things, like it doesn't have support for. Uh, the yank command and it doesn't do code folding at the moment. Right. Uh, but those are those are all coming. And honestly, if they feel like relatively minor things. Like I don't miss them too much not being there. And that's even speaking as a heavy user of code folding in Xcode 8 and previously. Um, it's I'd rather have a very smooth editing experience right. um, with this new Swift written source editor in Xcode 9 than to... Uh, go back to uh, even having those features, but having things kind of feel sluggish. Right. You use cold folding, folding a all lot? The time. Oh, really? all the time. I, I constantly use the keyboard shortcut to like fold everything, which gives me this nice kind of hierarchical uh, view of my file and all the declarations that are in there. It's basically like looking at the generated interface, except that you can... Um, you can really just pinpoint which parts that you're working on. Right. So like if if I'm working on a function within a class with all sorts of other things happening in that file, I'll just fold right. everything and unfold just the part that I'm working on, which is fantastic if I need to, I don't know, like copy the name of a function that's elsewhere in the file. Yeah, yeah. Or um, if I... If I'm just trying to remember, oh, what did I call that again? I can just look at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, I, I'm a heavy user of that. Ah, what are the shortcuts for that? So Command Option Shift Left and Right okay. will fold all and unfold all. Nice, um, and that's usually okay. all the folding shortcuts that I use are just those two. Okay, because 
um, it's faster to just like fold all and then click to unfold one. Exactly. The one thing that I'm working on, sometimes two things, you know, um, than it is to remember multiple shortcuts. And more often than not, I want to like fold all other than this one thing. Right. Um, so that's that's all I use, and they're super easy to remember. Um, yeah, yeah. Even though saying it out loud, it sounds complex, right. but it's right. it's really just kind of I can do it all in in one key press, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> Very convenient. Huh. I should integrate that more. I typically my experience with cold code folding is doing it accidentally and then getting angry <laughs> and then or and or confused for a, a brief moment. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll try that. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I'm I'm a heavy user of that, but it's it's one of those workflows that uh, doesn't necessarily work for everyone. Um, but it definitely, I can say, it definitely works for me. But that's what I'm saying is that with this new source editor in Xcodine, yeah. it doesn't support that just yet, and that's perfectly fine. We're just at beta two, um, and yeah. they've explicitly listed it as something in the release notes that uh, isn't supported, which they usually only do when they intend to to re-add back in. <laughs> right. Uh, right. So I'm pretty optimistic. Yeah, uh, the new source editor editor is also uh, really pretty as well. Uh, the the fix the fixits and everything that don't mess up all of the indentation and formatting, uh, the find or like search bar and files uh, looks nicer. It has the whole glossy new uh, new fancy iOS macOS uh, blur effect. It looks it looks amazing. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what they did, but it seems like the font rendering is uh, clearer. And yeah, so and much nicer. nicer. Yeah. Um, but uh, apparently one of the things, another thing that they haven't yet um, added in is uh, font ligatures. Mm. Um, so if your fonts use any sort of ligatures, which is more common in Swift now, more common now that people write more Swift. Yeah. Because you have things like um, the the dash greater than sign for an arrow mm-hmm. that a lot of people will use a ligature for and things like that. I don't personally use fonts with ligatures really. Yeah. Um, I usually just use papyrus. Do <laughs> <laughs> all of your development in papyrus. Yes, please. Yeah. Oh. I switch between that and Comic Sans. Yeah, just to make your coworkers really doubt you and judge you. <laughs> right. Actually, uh, in the the Xcode uh, theme editor, like when you can create themes, yeah. I think you can make... Um, so obviously you can like color... Uh, things uh as you want but i think you can actually choose fonts that's right yeah yeah you could like choose a different font for every type of keyword you do and i i actually make use of that most of the time because i italicize the comments and i think um xcode does this by default too Ah. but it is it is a less jarring um version of exactly what you're saying where you're just specifying the italicized font for your comments right 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 so um what else what else was announced that uh, that's exciting? Some minor stuff, not super related to Swift, but the GitHub integration in Xcode I found to be uh, pretty nice, actually, um, and like actually worked very well um, the first time I tried it. So um, it's cool. I mean, you know, Swift, all the projects are hosted on GitHub, so it kind of makes sense to to have that integration with Xcode. Um, not sure if we'll see other services integrated later, but um, yeah, I think it's like a cool thing to add mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, maybe make things a little bit more user-friendly for some people. 
Yeah, and if it means that um, people use source control a little bit more, um, then right. that's a great thing. Yeah. Um, because instead of using Dropbox for source control, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure this is a lot less common than it used to be, but you know, say like five, six years ago or more. Um, it really wasn't a given that a project would be using source control or maybe it would be using Dropbox. Yeah. Um, I definitely remember uh, when when I was working at an agency six years ago, mm-hmm. uh, we would get projects from, from clients who were uh, disgruntled with their previous developing company or, or agency, and then they would give us these projects, and they were only versioned via Dropbox. Um, <laughs> That's that, amazing. <laughs> and and I'm sure it still happens to some extent today. Like, say you create a new project, and um, you you don't actually start integrating source control until much later on. Yeah. Or you do, but then um, you only ever commit things like once a week or something. <laughs> so anything that Apple can do to encourage good source control uh, uh, behavior or, or habits um, is a win in my book. Yeah, yeah. Wow, committing once a week. Week 23, commit. <laughs> M- more code. W-I-P. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, some some great additions there. Uh, another big thing is the indexing while building. Mm-hmm. Um, another open source part. Yeah. Uh, did that land already? That did land. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a massive change, but um, it, I mean, in terms of like footprint in the code base, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously in terms of usage, that's a that's a massive win. Yeah. Uh, I always found it very frustrating, especially with large projects, uh, to wait for indexing. Right. And. Um, I don't know if it was in the State of the Union. I think it was actually in What's New in Swift 4 that they uh, went into a little bit more detail into how that works. And it's um, it's interesting because they definitely had to make a trade-off mm-hmm. where um, one of the nice things with their approach from before with Xcode 8 is that uh, the indexing happened um, – uh, well, out of process, but but so does the indexing and building now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it um, ran in the background, and it definitely didn't require as much uh, CPU usage sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but one of the downsides is that building requires re-indexing um, anyway. And one of the big problems with their previous architecture is that the index that was built while indexing that mm-hmm. was used for um, for syntax highlighting, for uh, quick look resolution, for documentation generation, for things like that, yeah. wasn't reused as part of the building phase. Uh. So they, they were living entirely independently, even though they use the same uh, kind of indexing format. Right. And so now what they've done is that uh, they've they've consolidated both of those things. So they use the same kind of index database, I think. I see. Um, which means that if you open an Xcode project, the first thing you do is build. It shouldn't have to index after that until you make changes to your source code mm-hmm. um, because it will just be able to reuse that same index. Mm-hmm. Huge win. Right. It seems uh, obvious in retrospect to... Uh to design it that way, but I'm sure there are all kinds of other things to to deal with and probably lots of debt as well. Yeah, probably a bit architectural because then you have like two fairly separate parts of Xcode that need to reuse a shared resource, Mm -hmm. um, which is the index, and making sure that the actions of one uh, invalidate 
the index for the other, uh, you know, cash and validation it might not have been super easy. Right. But definitely <laughs> happy that they've done it. Yeah. Uh, what else was uh, was was opened up? Well, the migrator um, was opened up. I don't yeah. know if we mentioned that so far. No, no, I don't think so. Uh, and there's definitely a lot to say about the migrator. In fact, we might dedicate a whole episode to it later on. Um, but uh, the migrator is fantastic. That's landed in in the core or in in, in the repo, um, and it's fascinating to see because it um, speaks both Swift version languages. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you can only migrate from three to four. Right. Right. The migrator has no knowledge of previous uh, compiler versions. So if you have a project that was written in Swift 2 and you need to migrate it to Swift 4, you'll need to first use the Swift 3 compiler to uh, migrate to Swift 3, and then maybe you can migrate to Swift 4. Um, but this new migrator is is really just written from scratch to migrate from Swift 3 to Swift 4. Uh, I didn't realize that, actually. Yeah, and... Previously, now we only know this from like back channels, but previously the migrator that was included in Xcode versions, like mm-hmm. in Xcode 7 and Xcode 8, um, were written using the previous version of the Swift compiler mm-hmm. because it had to read the previous Swift version. And then it would um, sort of string gen. Uh, the Swift 4 equivalent to it, right? So the old migrators had n- no real knowledge of the version that they were migrating to. or They had knowledge, but they they weren't integrating any of the powerful aspects of those compilers. Mm-hmm. They were really written with the previous Swiffers, which makes total sense, come to think of it. Right. But now that Swift 3 and Swift 4... Um, can use the same compiler. Basically, the Swift 4 compiler has a Swift 3 mode. It means that Swift 4 can read and understand Swift 3, which is a great architecture to build a migrator as part of the compiler, and that's exactly what they've done here. So that in theory, I'm not sure how this would work in practice, but in theory, you can use the migrator uh, directly as part of the compiler, Mm -hmm. which, again, in theory, should let you migrate Swift 3 to Swift 4 on Linux, for example. Oh, I haven't looked at, yeah. to see like what kind of invocations or what kind of command line interface you could use to do this, but uh, this architecture definitely allows that. Right. That's a good point uh, because a lot of these tools um, do not benefit the Linux community, right? Things that are integrated with Xcode, uh, at least not maybe directly or easily. Well, more and more, this this stuff that powers Xcode is in the Swift right code base right right we've talked about source kit obviously syntax highlighting refactoring uh and migrator all of those things now are technically decoupled from xcode right right it still means that but prior to this right prior to this yeah it's still a significant amount of work like xcode makes it so effortless Mm -hmm. to go and migrate something you know you open the project and prompts you right away you know um, and then everything works and you don't have to fix anything. Well, not so much, <laughs> but uh, at least it exposes it in a very um, user-friendly way. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that the end result is flawless, but the process is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully, you know, what this means is that there's still quite a bit of work to re-expose these kinds of things on Linux, but mm-hmm. at least at least it's available. Yeah. Yeah, so just remember, next time you have trouble with a migrator, it'd be worse on Linux. <laughs> also, remember, next time you have trouble with a migrator, 
it's open source and you can fix it. So no more tweets about if only this was open source, if only Xcode was open source, you'd fix it because yeah. it basically is. Go in and fix it. Um, yeah, th- th- there's a lot more to say about the migrator, but we'll keep that for later. Yeah, there's some other uh, uh, great improvements uh, in Swift. So we had uh, a couple episodes about Swift 4, um, but I took some notes during the State of the Union and uh, some of the, the stats they touted, uh, two to three times improvement in string processing, uh, full Unicode 9 support, uh, 40% improvement in compile times for uh, mix and match projects, which is pretty awesome. Uh, that's Swift and Objective-C. Yeah, that's due to the pre-compiled uh, headers that mm-hmm. they can now make use of. Yeah, and uh, two times faster uh, compile times with whole module optimization, which is cool. Right, and none of that's even counting um, the build time optim- um, improvements due to the new build system in Xcode 9. Right, right. Right, and this new build system is also another component of developer tools written in Swift. Mm-hmm. Um, just awesome, awesome to see. Uh, it's built on LL Build, um, which is open source. Yeah, and which is what underlies uh, SPM. That's right. Yeah. So now we have um, Xcode and SPM that use the same underlying build tool. Right. Uh, LL Build. So very exciting stuff. <laughs> Even more of Xcode that's open source. Come to think of it, really. Right. And uh, I've seen some dramatic improvements to build times using this new build system, which is in preview, available as a preview in Xcode 9. You need to opt into it in your project settings. Which are actually a little obscure. It's like yeah. kind of hard to find those. Uh, it's, it's this weird modal that's yeah. in Xcode that I'd never seen before. Yeah, same here. Yeah. But it's, it's not hard right. to enable. You just kind of have to know where to look. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and then I think the really cool thing is that really lays the the groundwork and foundation for having proper SPM integration into Xcode in the future. Um, so hopefully we'll see that. That's right. You know, I'd, I'd love to see long term um, if we really consider uh, Xcode to be a front end to everything that's available uh, in in the Swift open source repos, mm-hmm. which it, we're getting closer and closer to that ideal, and then you can build other front ends, right? Right. We see Swift PM as a potential uh, implementation of that, right? Where it's a it's another front end to all of Swift and building Swift projects, mm-hmm. um, and we're also seeing it as part of community projects where you you look at. Uh, what David Owens has been doing with the Swift language server mm-hmm. um, and uh, Swift for Visual Studio Code. Right. Um, and so we're we're really going in a very nice direction here architecturally. Um, and we have a long ways to go to consider, um, you know, to kind of round out the ecosystem, but this is a great direction to go in. And I guess the last thing to discuss is the... WWDC 2017 Swift panel um, that I hosted with Realm that JPN unfortunately missed out on, but it's okay. We we forgive him for missing. I've got to say, <laughs> you did an awesome job uh, being a, a last-minute impromptu host. I texted Jesse the day before <laughs> right. the panel saying, uh, so you want to host it? Um and he uh, he graciously uh, accepted, and he did an awesome job. So I, I just caught up uh, watching it just last week, actually. Yeah. So this is fresh in my mind. Happy to yeah. to talk about it. 
uh, yeah, it was super fun. Uh, so it was Camila Taylor, Kevin Ballard, and uh, some guy named Chris Latner. Um, and uh, we talked for a little bit about Swift, uh, the community, the announcements at DubDub, and it was really great. Um, Ola Bigaman has written up a great blog post with excerpts uh, from the panel, uh, mostly focusing on Chris's comments on Swift and Swift Evolution, and he kind of has this nice transcript. He's also linked to a bunch of useful resources. So uh, it's a pretty cool uh, blog post that's uh, definitely worth reading, I think. Yeah, I mean, when we were talking about making this panel, this is Realm's third year running Swift panel, by the way. Um, and so when when Jesse and I were talking about what we could potentially discuss as part of the panel basically having a real live version of this podcast um was one of the one of the concepts and if we look at the excerpts that Ola compiled a lot of these topics here are things that we have covered in the show before mm-hmm. but with other guests and that was great to get some some other opinions on that one of the topics of course you can't not discuss the swift evolution process and whether or not that's a good thing. Um, especially insightful to hear Chris's take on this uh, because he's obviously been a huge champion of Swift going open source and the community is now seeing kind of the double-edged sword that that is, mm-hmm. which I'm sure was heavily debated within Apple and probably even was um, part of some resistance against opening up a lot of the process. Mm-hmm. So it's great to to hear his take. He said, you know, even though it's frustrating sometimes, this is Chris now, even though it's frustrating sometimes, it helps to get people arguing back and forth um, to really understand what the trade-offs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so much of the language is about trade-offs. And if you can't see those, um, or you can't see those trade-offs unless you have a community of people that really represent those different points. Right. Um, which is great to see. And we've heard before that these debates and the bike shedding, it was happening before Swift was open too. It just was happening within Apple. Mm-hmm. So we can say that the fact that the process is now open slows everything down. And I do think that there's some nugget of truth to that. But it's not like it was completely flawless and without any impediment before it was open. Right. Because Apple's a huge organization. This was happening within Apple itself. And I'm sure there was plenty of pushback, plenty of bike shedding before. Um, so it's nice to see that overall, uh, Chris at least seems to think that that there's a net positive here due to the openness of the process. And I definitely agree. Right. Well, we can even see some of that uh, earlier uh, internal bike shedding uh, in the main Swift repo, there's that docs folder that has like the error handling rationale um, and some of the other error handling docs, as well as like other discussions and like things that were implemented in Swift when it was still closed source. Um, and so it's interesting to to get at least a glimpse of some of those discussions um, that happened before Swift was open. For sure. Um, another interesting conversation point where the the panel led to was talking about Swift as a server language. Um, and when when we talk about that, we mostly really just say Swift on Linux. And Swift is such a young language right now. Mm-hmm. It's easy to compare it against 
more mature languages, and if if not more mature than older languages, right? And to say, well, look at all the JavaScript adoption on on the server. Look at uh, Ruby, PHP, mm-hmm. um, all of that. But ultimately, when you look at where those languages were, three four languages after their initial public release, you get a very different picture. Um, so what what did you think about that part of the conversation of the panel? Uh, I mean, I still, um, I don't. Know, I think uh, Chris's main point there was like this takes a lot of time to become um, a mature ecosystem that that people actually use. And, um, you know, it's going to take a while before we get to that point, but we're like laying the foundations for this stuff now. Um, Chris Bailey gives a lot of talks for IBM and all of their server tools for Swift. And he always has um, these graphs like showing performance characteristics compared to Java um, and PHP and Ruby and Node.js. And Swift is always better performing um, uh, in most of these cases in terms of like memory usage and, and other aspects. And I, I think it's just gonna it's gonna take a while till that the tooling is there for people to like really adopt it widely. Right. And one of my favorite parts of the panel was um, hearing a little bit more about the origins of Swift, how how Swift got started, and what I find fascinating is that. Being on the other side of this, you know, really only discovering Swift once it was ready to be announced to the world is knowing exactly how much of a scrappy project it was right at the beginning where the goal wasn't to completely revitalize all of Apple's developer tool infrastructure and stack right Mm -hmm. out of the gate. It was really, uh, let's start hacking. Let's start building something. Let's see where it goes, pulling on the string. Um, uh, so it's fascinating to see that uh, big projects still start off like any other project, right? You know, as a as a small little proof of concept, and then uh, you start seeing the value more and more as you start to refine it. Yeah, it's also um, interesting, you know, the perspective of uh, why not make Objective C better, which Chris brought up, and. Um, uh, there were actually a lot of improvements to Objective-C over that time period, um, namely ARC, uh, dictionary and array literals, um, a lot of things that laid the foundations for Swift, really. Um, those were like really some of the early indications of uh, something new is coming uh, because they wanted this memory model, uh, a reference, an automatic reference counted model, right? They didn't want manual retain and release in this new modern language. Um, and so like laying foundations for that and having that support in Objective-C is what kind of helped pave the way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there were also some awesome audience questions. Uh, one of them was uh, kind of funny. Uh, didn't Apple promote the idea that classes are bad with the protocol-oriented programming session at WWDC? And and this is so hilarious, you know, to think that um, that there's a very core part of the language that uh, everyone should actively avoid using. Um, you know, things are, are there for a reason. Uh, and granted, there are parts of Swift that 
are mostly there for historical reasons. There aren't major parts of Swift that are there for historical reasons. I I I, I would venture out to say. Um, mm-hmm. So, like for example, the the naming convention was like very Objective C ish for Swift, uh, for Swift one, Swift two. Yeah. Um, but although that changed a lot what the language looks like, it didn't change how the language behaved all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas classes are a core pillar of how you can build things with Swift. They're the other side of the value versus reference coin. Right. Um, and so hearing Latner elaborate a little bit on how the protocol-oriented programming talk from WWDC um, from two years ago, it was really exposing this community that was mostly uh, familiar with dealing with uh with reference types and reference semantics um, and and the Objective-C way of thinking to a new way of thinking about things. Um, and if you watch the talk, you'll see that Dave Abrahams does say classes are good for all, all of these reasons and, and lays a number of them out. And the point of the talk was to challenge how people thought about things and explain that it's not the only way Sometimes when when you're trying to make a point like this, people can take it to the extreme, and I definitely think that the community did that, whereas maybe WWC 2018, we'd be due for a talk that's really saying, how can you make this decision of, like, do you want reference semantics? Do you want value semantics? Right. What are the trade-offs? When do you want one over, over the other? Um, and really kind of hone in on that to help get people more comfortable with the idea that um, Swift isn't just a language that you should use 20% of. It's a language that you could use 100% of if you have the right reasons to go and pick from various parts of that tool chest. Right. Yeah, and that is one of the things that I love about Swift. It's um, having all of these different ways to solve problems and think about them. You know, it really... So many of the features of Swift just really open up the design space that you have where now when I write Objective-C code, it feels very restrictive to me. Um, There are things that I can't express in Objective-C that I want to, or you can, but it's very dirty and hacky and ugly um, to express in Objective-C. And even then you only get like part of the way there. Um, Yeah, I I thought... um, uh, yeah, that was a great elaboration on on those topics. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a fantastic panel. I'm uh, I'm sad that I wasn't able to participate, but I was uh, very entertained <laughs> watching <Right>. it. <laughs> cool. I guess that's all we have for today. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped, and you can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me at SimJP. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.